At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records for us the telling comment that the crowds were astonished at Jesus' teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I do believe, as Matthew records that comment, that he means an astonishment that was throughout the sermon. I do believe the crowds were astonished at all of Christ's teaching because of how new it was in light of what the Pharisees had been teaching for so long. But I can't help think, perhaps, there was a particular moment of surprise around about 548. I can't help but think perhaps there was a particular note of astonishment when the crowds gathered heard Jesus say, you have to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that astonishment only increases when you understand that the verse there is not simply a conclusion to the immediate paragraph. It is not simply a concluding remark on his command to love your enemies, but it rightly forms the conclusion to this whole section. Jesus at 5.48 rounds off this section that we so often referred to as the six antitheses. I say to you, you have heard it said, he pushes back against the Pharisees' teaching and he concludes this unit within the sermon with this one verse that is intended to sit over everything he has just said. So you see, Jesus is not simply speaking about our love for our enemies being reflective of the Father's love. But our whole ethic, all of our moral impulses need to be perfect. How could Jesus say this? There are some misunderstandings that commonly attach themselves to this verse that we'll work through. Not least that Jesus isn't actually teaching that our morality needs to be without error. But up front... Broadly speaking, Jesus is teaching here that our whole life must be an outworking of our joyful submission to a holy God whose plan centers on Christ. 548 teaches that our whole life needs to be an outworking of our joyful submission to a holy God whose plan centers on Christ. Now I understand you might be looking at that verse saying, I don't see that. That's okay. I want to walk through the text with you this morning and try and understand what Jesus isn't teaching and what he is teaching and its implications for us, beginning with what Jesus is not saying. When Jesus says you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he is not here speaking about what we call imputed righteousness. When you put your faith in Christ, 
There is an immediate transaction. It is a legal transaction. We refer to it as the doctrine of justification. When anyone looks upon Christ savingly, confesses him as a sufficient savior and the only means by which we might be made right with a holy God, God guarantees that in that instant, all of our sins are forgiven. Additionally, he guarantees that Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to us. And that exchange is what we refer to as justification. And imputed righteousness is the term that we use for Christ, his righteousness now being credited to us. So your bank account went from a a negative infinity to a positive infinity the second that you believed upon Christ. Sometimes you hear people define the doctrine of justification as just as if we never sinned. That's only half the story. That's not a sufficient definition for the doctrine of justification. His robes for mine, it's a twofold exchange. Our negative account is wiped clean. Our debt is forgiven. We are no longer guilty before a holy God. And Christ's righteousness is now imputed, credited to us. So that when God looks at us, he sees a perfect record. That is a biblical truth. It is not what Christ is speaking about here. When he says you must be perfect, he's not making an appeal that you would trust in him and get that perfect righteousness and therefore you satisfy this verse. It is theologically true. It is not what Jesus is speaking about here. We know that at least in part Because 548 forms a mirror image with the opening of this section. I think all the way back to 517 through 20 when we studied there. And you'll remember in 520 he said, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here we have a parallel idea. It's not exactly the same words. But in 5.20, he says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. In 5.48, he says, you need to be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. They mirror one another in their thoughts, their intention. And you'll remember all the way back in 5.20, we understood that the righteousness towards which Jesus was commending us there was a righteousness that was greater, not in quantity, but in quality. He was not saying to the people of his day, righteousness needs to exceed in quantity that of the Pharisees, but in its essence, it needs to be a greater righteousness. And that is because it is a righteousness that flows out of a love for God. Then notice the rest of the section that sits in between 520 and 548, is a section where Christ keeps issuing ethical commands. It stands to reason that in 548, if he is commending us to an actual righteousness, 
the teaching in the near context shows us what that righteousness looks like. So is imputed righteousness theologically true as a concept? Absolutely. Is it what he's talking about here? No. In 548, Jesus is teaching that we have a responsibility to walk in an upright manner in some way that is reflective of the righteousness of God. Now, this is incredibly important for us to grasp. It's important for us to think upon the demands that Jesus places on his disciples. Because I think often Christians appeal to the doctrine of imputed righteousness as a means of escaping the responsibilities that the Bible does place on our lives. I do think all too often Christians run to the doctrine of imputed righteousness without necessarily wrestling with the text in view as a means of dismissing the real moral responsibility that God places on us as disciples of the Lord Jesus. You see this throughout church history, the theological pendulum swings back and forth through generations, times when the church has majored so much on the moral imperatives of the Christian faith that they have lost all sight of God's grace so that people are burdened with a legalistic Christianity. And then in due course, the pendulum swings the other way and the church now espouses so much the imputed righteousness of Christ that they start to lose the reality of our responsibility. And of course, the Bible teaches both, and they go hand in hand. One flows out of the other. As you bask in the reality that this morning you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you then are not hesitant to accept the responsibilities that come with your salvation. You must grasp hold of and take seriously Jesus' teaching here in chapter 5, verse 48 of Matthew. So he's not here talking about imputed righteousness. Equally, Jesus is not here saying that we must be morally without fault. This is where we come to learn that the word perfect in our translations, is not perhaps the best word to represent what Jesus was saying. Jesus called his disciples and they would be forever walking with him in a manner that very much put on display their inadequacies. He didn't banish them the second they failed. He persevered with them. We know that he did not expect that they would live up to a perfect morality without failing. More than that, if we step back and zoom out, we understand that salvation, the economy of salvation that the Bible presents, is one wherein we will not be morally perfect without fault until we stand before the Lord Jesus. He has been gracious to save you. In that moment, he wipes your slate clean. There is not one sin against your name, his righteousness is credited to you, and then you begin a process that will last your whole earthly lives of striving towards holiness, 
God leads you by His grace in this process of sanctification. And it's only on the last day when you stand before Christ and you see Him face to face for who He is that your sanctification will be complete and you'll be without sin. Jesus wrote that script. He knows that as his disciple, you won't be morally without fault. So he's not teaching here that you must be perfect in the sense that we might use that word. What is Jesus saying? The word here, perfect, has as its Old Testament foundation a word that more properly means whole or complete. There is a word in the Old Testament originally written in the Hebrew language used many times over that means whole, not lacking, complete, unscathed, untainted. As that word and those scriptures were then subsequently translated into the Greek language, the word used in Greek to represent wholeness, completeness, is the word that Jesus uses here. You could, and some do translate verse 48, you therefore must be whole, just as your Father, Heavenly Father, is whole. Noah would be an example of this. In the Old Testament, Noah is described as a righteous man, whole, not lacking in his generation. It's this word. It's not to say Noah was without sin. The narrative testifies to the fact that Noah made mistakes. He sinned against God. He wasn't sinless, but he was a man of integrity. His life represented in a failed way according to the fact that he is a sinner His life represented an allegiance to God and a submission to his commands. And so what Jesus is teaching is that we need to be people who are whole, complete, people of integrity, just as our Father in heaven is. God is steadfast in his holiness. As we've already seen this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is holy in all that he does and all that he says. He is not a God who behaves in one way on a certain day and on the next day we're unsure of the way that he will behave. Nor is he a God who exhibits holiness in one particular area and fails to do so elsewhere. God is whole in his holiness. He is consistent and steadfast. He is complete. And Jesus teaches, if indeed you are my disciple, this will be true of you also. You will be whole, complete, steadfast in your holiness. It brings with it an implication. Again, as we strive to honor Christ and live out the life of a disciple, it brings with it an implication that we would be striving to bring our whole lives under the commands of Scripture. We should, as Christians, be seeking to bring all that we are, all who we are, everything we do under the commands of Scripture, not content that there might be areas of our life that don't demonstrate submission to God's will. 
And I labor that because I do think there are many Christians who take seriously their holiness on a Sunday and don't care often about their holiness Monday through Saturday. Many Christians who take very, very seriously their conduct when they're with God's people. On a Wednesday evening, they don't care much for what their eyes see on the internet. On a Friday night, they don't think too much about whether their behavior dishonors Christ or not. In the quiet hours on a Tuesday morning, they make no effort to restrain their thoughts from going places where they ought not go. Because people can't see. Their holiness is a concern to them on a Sunday because they seek affirmation. They want acceptance amongst the people of God. So then we'll take it seriously. But when you're out of the public eye, when no one's watching, now my holiness is not so much of a concern to me. And what Jesus teaches here is that your whole life needs to demonstrate submission to God's word. All that you do, every sphere in which you might operate, every hour, every day, there needs to be a conscious and a deliberate exercising of the will towards God's word. To bring your thoughts, your words, the intentions of your heart consistently in line with the commands of Scripture. It is not simply holistic in all that you do, but it also infers a consistency. The God who we worship this morning is the same God who Moses worshipped. You ever think about that? The God who we sung praises to this morning is the same God in character, in nature, as God worshipped when he drew the people out of Egypt. He has not changed. He is the same God. He is steadfast through the ages. And as Jesus teaches that we ought to be whole, complete, like our Heavenly Father, that infers upon us a consistency through the seasons. It is not okay for us to strive towards holiness only when things are going well. God will ordain seasons for us And throughout all of them, the imperative that rests upon the disciple of the Lord Jesus is one of holiness. He wants for us to be whole, complete, people of integrity, people of a steadfast holiness. Now, we can go further than that. It is not simply this holistic, complete, moral ethic that Christ commends us to, there is more to say by observing the correspondence in verse 48 between us and our Heavenly Father is not a point of comparison which is merely incidental. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
So Jesus draws that comparison between us, his disciples, and our heavenly Father. There is a a likeness, the likeness, the similarity in our holiness is not merely incidental. One derives from the other. One flows out of the other. That's inferred even in Jesus' use of fatherly language. We saw this last week as he taught us, love your enemies. Why? Because you are sons of your father. And so you should look like him. You should bear the resemblance of your father who is in heaven and he has loved his enemies. In the same way, Jesus' exhortation for us to be whole, not lacking in our holiness, is to be a derivative of our Father who is in heaven. And again, we do well to think back to the beginning of this unit, all the way back to 5.17 through 20, where we saw that principle more clearly. There, the mirror verse is 5.20, Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's the parallel thought in this unit. But remember the context in which Jesus said that. It began with Jesus saying in 5.17, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's what set this whole section off. I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. And if you consult your notes, you'll remember we said back then, Jesus' very specific use of the terms law and prophets meant more than a reference to the words on the pages of the Old Testament. It's more than him saying, I haven't come to rip those pages out of your Bible. What Jesus was doing by invoking the law and the prophets was he was appealing to a plan, a much greater plan that the law and the prophets testify to, which God has set in motion from Genesis 3 onwards, a redemptive plan. And Jesus shows up and says, I haven't come to work against that plan. I haven't come to undermine it. I haven't come to do something else. I'm not running in the other direction. I am upholding that plan. I affirm that plan. And in fact, I, Jesus, will perpetuate that plan and ultimately bring it to its proper conclusion. It's within that context that Jesus says, and you, my disciples, need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Similarly here as he gives a thought that parallels 5.20, you need to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We understand that our wholeness is a derivative of our joyful submission to a holy God whose plan centers on Christ. You see, the theology that he gave in 5.17 through 20 is very much in view at the end of this unit. There is a plan. I haven't come to work against it. I haven't come to undermine it. I've come to uphold, affirm, perpetuate, and ultimately fulfill it. And you, if you are my disciples, need to get on board with that plan. You need to be on board with all that I'm doing. I'm perpetuating God's plan. You need to be on board with it. And as you think about the way in which you live your lives, 
It needs to be an expression of your submission to a holy God whose plan centers on me. Everything you do needs to be an outworking of the reality of God centering his plan on Christ. So he is teaching that our ethics, our moral impulses, sit downstream of our belief in Jesus Christ. It sounds so simple. And yet so many fail to make that connection. So many Christians will put their faith in Christ without really any understanding of why they do what they do thereafter. So many commands in Scripture. So many do's, so many don'ts. Why do we do what we do? Why is this command a concern for Christ and not some other command that we might come up with? Why is the Christian ethic the way it is? It sits downstream of our affirmation of Jesus Christ as the only means towards salvation. The only means by which we might be saved is the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we embrace that reality, there is an ethic that comes out of it. And in part, in verse 48, God is compelling us to connect the two. That our morality must be an outworking of our faith in Christ. I had just this week the privilege of preaching these realities to the students over there at the Masters University. I was preaching there on Monday and Wednesday. And on the drive to evening church last Sunday evening, I mentioned that to Laura. I said, I'm preaching Tomorrow in the chapel and again on Wednesday, it's one of my favorite places to open God's Word. In part because of the potential that exists in that room when you look at these hundreds and hundreds of students. I can't help but think what glory might be wrought for the name of Christ as they leave this institution and go out into the world. And so it's a privilege to open God's word. And Laura said, well, what are you going to preach to them? Surely you'll just bring two sermons you've done at Bethany recently. I said, that would be too easy. <laughs> Do hard things, right? More to the point, I said, I really want to speak to them about the issues of the sexual revolution and sexual ethics and try, if I can, to connect the dots for them from what they believe about Christ and why they then do what they do. So on Monday, I preached a sermon from the narrative focusing on Sodom and Gomorrah. On Wednesday, we jumped to Judges 19, the narrative of the men at Gibeah. You know the text where the concubine is given over to the men, and in the morning, her master cuts her into pieces. So I shared this with Laura. I said, that's my thoughts. And she looked up the texts on her phone, and she said, why would you ever choose to preach these texts? It's one thing. If you're preaching through Judges, you'll get to 19 eventually, and you've got to preach it. 
But to choose to go there when you've got all these other wonderful, encouraging texts. And again, I said, I want for them to have an answer for the faith that they have in Christ. They need to be able to explain why God destroyed Sodom. They need to be able to explain why all that we see going on in society today, especially in that realm of sexual ethics, runs contrary to faith in Christ. Because you see, if you cannot connect your ethics to your faith, then your moral impulses will be without conviction. You may follow them for a time, But who's to say when the going gets tough and there is a pressure, an almighty pressure that will be placed on these people when they leave the university and go out into society. When that pressure comes, who's to say they won't capitulate and get under society's ethic? You have to be able to connect the dots between the Christian moral code and faith in Christ, the gospel. You need to be able to see how one flows out of the other. And you understand how important this is when you note that outside of the church, there is no one asking the question, how can I be forgiven of my sins? You see that maybe hundreds of years ago, that may have been the burden of the man on the street. Can you please tell me how I can be made right with God? That is no longer the question being asked. You have to lead them there. It's necessary for you to lead them there so that they can believe savingly upon Christ and repent of their sin, but they're not leading the conversation with that question. The questions being asked is why homosexuality is a sin. The questions being asked is why the Christian church persists in its so-called bigoted doctrines. Questions being asked is, why can't a man marry a man? If there's mutual consent, why can't that be marriage? They're the issues that these young people will be facing. And as heralds of the gospel, they have to be able to connect their belief in Christ, their embracing of the gospel with the ethic that it then entails. And it's no different here in verse 48 as Jesus draws this point of correspondence between the Father and Jesus' disciples. You have to understand that one flows out of the other. It's not a merely incidental correspondence, but rather we are whole, complete, precisely because our Father is. He is whole and complete. And as you study the gospel and as you learn more of his nature, then you understand why Jesus commands the things that he does. Why these commands are important for him. Jesus says, don't be angry. Why is that important to him? Why would Jesus, of the thousands of commands he could have issued, lead with, don't be angry? Because I am leading you towards a kingdom. And that kingdom is marked by peace. There's no anger in that kingdom. And so if you have been gifted citizenship to my kingdom... 
behave like you will one day be there. Jesus says, don't lust and don't divorce. Why is he concerned to speak about those things? Why is that one of the imperatives of the Christian faith? Do not lust in your heart. Don't pursue divorce in the way the Pharisees have taught you to pursue it. Why? Because God reigns so wonderfully over all of redemptive history that he has even designed your sexual conduct to point forward to future realities. God's plan is so all-encompassing that the desires he has given you, he is situated within a context, one man, one woman, exclusive and permanent relationships so that when you pursue them in that context, they now point forward to the glorious marriage of Christ and his church. To do otherwise with those desires is to abuse that glorious image of Christ and his church. So if God has gifted you salvation, don't lust and don't divorce. Jesus says, speak the truth. Be a person of integrity. Let your yes mean yes. And when someone comes a second time, you have nothing more to say. You say yes. Make sure that your actions reflect your words and that your words reflect your heart. Why? Because you've been redeemed by a God who speaks the truth. God always speaks the truth. And again, he is leading you towards a kingdom where there will only be truth-tellers. No deceit in that day. There will be no deceit in that day. And so in so much as he has granted you salvation, you do whatever it takes today to let your yes mean yes. Jesus says, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. Why? Because God acted in this way towards you. This is how he saved you. So you honor that salvation. And if necessary, you allow the outworking of evil in your life. Insomuch as it champions the cause of the gospel and brings glory to your savior. We could go on and certainly Jesus could have gone on. You read all of the imperatives that are in the epistles of the New Testament. They're all connected to the gospel. None of them sit apart from the theology of salvation. They all issue out from the saving gospel. And Christians must live their whole lives in light of the gospel. It is your responsibility to study Scripture and to turn over and over the morality that God impresses upon you by obligation, saved entirely by His grace, and now you have a responsibility to obey. It is your responsibility to study that ethic and to connect the dots with the gospel by which you have been saved in order that you would be whole, complete, as your heavenly Father is whole. Now a note on how we obey. How do we move forward? How do we ensure 
that in light of Jesus' real responsibility that he places on all those who follow after him, how do we obey? A few hundred years ago, a man named Thomas Chalmers wrote a short essay entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If you haven't read it yet, it needs to be up at the top of your reading list. Chalmers sought to answer the question of how Christians can be freed from those practices which dishonor Christ. Christians still sin, but they're not sinning out of obligation. An unbeliever sins out of obligation. He, she can't do otherwise. They're enslaved to sin. A Christian has been set free from the bondage of sin, and yet they continue to dishonor Christ in many ways. So Chalmers asked the question, how can a Christian be set freed from those practices? And he leads by saying the reason a Christian still sins is because they have some affection for their sin. It's no longer out of obligation. It's because they have some remaining affection for their sin. At some level in their heart, they continue to distrust God, that his plans are better. What Chalmers argued is that you need to displace your affection for that sin with a new affection. You displace your affection for that sin with a new, greater affection, hence the expulsive power of a new affection. And so our responsibility is to look at our loving Heavenly Father and to marvel at Him. Read Deuteronomy 6, read Exodus 20, read just about any passage in the Old Testament law that puts his character on display and turn it around in your heart, allow it to saturate your mind and pray that your love for your heavenly Father would increase. You gaze upon the glory of his Son. Read through the Gospels again. Don't ever grow bored of the Gospels. Read these familiar narratives and ask that God would give you fresh eyes to see the glory of His Son. You marvel at the work of the Holy Spirit, so faithful to minister truth to you, to dwell inside of you. Consider the work of the Holy Spirit and ask that God would cause you to adore Him. And as your affections for him grow, you then joyfully submit to the ethic that Jesus teaches, that the apostles teach. You walk in accordance with his will, being whole in all that you do through every season. Your life joyfully submits to a holy God whose plan centers on Christ.
Let's pray now to close. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We give you thanks for this section that we've studied for some weeks now. With the crowds, we are amazed that Jesus' teaching must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Help us to take seriously the responsibility that comes with being a Christian. Father, I pray we wouldn't treat your word lightly. Help us to be in your word, wrestling with your word. Give us wisdom to see how the commands of Scripture are intended to intersect our lives. Give us wisdom to know how to walk in obedience. Father, give us the fortitude to turn away from sin. Give us affections for Christ. Affections for you, affections for the Spirit. Enlarge our hearts towards you and your plan that centers on your Son. And as we learn yet more how to delight in him, may we see that fruit of obedience in our lives. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.